Welcome back to the Colorado Switchblade. I'm your host, as always, Jason Vantinov. Well, I'm going to do something a little different today. It ties into some, some things that I've touched on before, specifically the climate crisis that we are currently in. Man, it's hard to believe there's still people out there that just don't get it that they think this is just some natural cycle. Apparently they're just in some sort of, I don't know, cognitive dissidence loop. I mean, the world's burning around us. It's flooding. It's everywhere. We got some new neighbors that, uh, been having some discussions where I'm specifically trying to steer away from politics, but yeah. Anyway, so we're going to be talking about a couple things today. It's going to be a shorter broadcast, pretty specific. So I started getting these sponsored posts on Facebook. I'm sure some of you have gotten them as well. Um, from the Rand Corporation of all places. And um, if you're not familiar with the Rand Corporation, if you've seen Dr. Strangelove, the... Um, the bland corporation that is mentioned in the movie is actually um, kind of a satirical reference to the Rand Corporation. But they're, they, they, to be fair, they are not the think tank that they were back in the uh, uh, post World War II era. They're actually doing some things that are decent, but I, I'm still skeptical. Like, my big, when this came across my newsfeed, I was like, Wait, why are these guys pushing this? Like, do, do they have something that they're going to be selling to the Department of Defense? Like, what, what's what's the gig here? But they're talking about some really important stuff. So uh, we're going to dig into that. And um, before we do that, let's go ahead and um, pay the bills. So uh, once a month for my sponsors, I give them a few minutes to come on and tell us about what they got going on. Of course, my sponsors this month are the Historic Park Theater here in Estes Park, Colorado, and the Real Mountain Theater also here in Estes. And um, so we're going to have the owner, Jenna McGregor, come on real quick and tell us about what she's got going on this month. And then we're going to jump into this uh, this push by the Rand Corporation. We're going to break down who the Rand Corporation is, what they're saying exactly, um, and uh, just kind of go from there thought it was an interesting subject and uh so yeah also i wanted to ask you guys and gals you human beings um so i've got this new gopro hero it's like top of the line um and uh, i've been playing around with it and with substack here we have the ability to post videos so I was thinking for my paid membership, which, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of certain that the world is sick of seeing my face at this point. It's everywhere. Um, but, you know, I, I'm trying to add value to the paid members because, again, I don't I because we live in a bit of a news desert. There are a lot of subject matter that's not covered by the local media. I want to be sure that, you know, the the news that I do cover, especially the local breaking news and um, different investigative stories, which will be having part of one come out later this week. Um, 
gets covered because a lot of this stuff just is not being covered by the local newspapers. And, and, you know, part of that is advertising conflicts in my opinion. That's just my humble opinion, but that's, that's what I think it is. And just, so, um, my question to you, and I'll see, I think I might be able to do a poll on the, the, this posting and, um, otherwise, uh, I'll open the comments up to everyone and just let me know, like, would you be interested in seeing a video version for paid membership um, of my podcast and every now and then doing different little video specials? Um, just something I'm thinking of doing. I don't know if there's any actual interest in it. You know, maybe people would much rather hear my voice and see my face. But, you know, I'll leave it up to you all. Uh, so let me know what you think. And we'll uh, we'll go from there. All right. Well, here's Jenna McGregor. She's going to be talking to us about what she's got going on over at the theaters in town. Hi, Jason. Just wanted to say thanks and drop in and tell everybody, please don't forget about our unlimited membership to the movies. This is a really special deal. It makes it so that it's very affordable to go back to the movie theaters. The Real Mountain Theater and the Historic Park Theater are both owned by us now. We're uh, locally owned and operated. And you can go to every movie, whether it's at the Historic Park Theater or over at the Real Mountain Theater for one low price per month. So you can see Minions and Jurassic World and you can see Thor, any of the any of the movies that we have. You also can go see the Fathom Event movies. And those movies are as a part of the package. And you can see these for one low price Children are just $17. Students and seniors are $19 per month. And an adult is just $24 a month. And that makes it so you can see every movie. And I counted up the movies last, last month. And I figured out that if you, if you did our unlimited package, you would have been able to see 14 different movies between the Historic Park Theater and the Real Mountain Theater for the month with all of the Fathom events that we have going on and the first run films. So it's really quite the deal. As long as you can take the time to head to the movies three times a month, you are making out like a bandit on our unlimited package. So please, you know, think about taking advantage of that. It actually helps us out. You also get discounts, including uh, large drinks and large popcorns are a dollar off for all of our members. And it also gives you a discount if you're one of the people that come to the operas at the Historic Park Theater. It takes off $9 um, on the operas as well. So it's really quite the, the specialty for those that take advantage of our unlimited membership. Okay, other things that are happening at the Historic Park coming up is that we also have a very special Reader's Theater being done by the uh, Fine Arts Guild of the Rockies. That is going to be the story that's about Lord Dunraven. And it is being done as a reader's theater. Tickets are are going to be on sale starting today. And it is going to be on August the 12th and August the 13th. On Friday, the August the 12th, it'll be at 7 o'clock p.m. And on the 13th, it's going to be a 2 o'clock p.m. showing. And this is a live reader's theater being done by actors and actresses uh, within our community. So other movies coming up, we have uh, the Kiki's Delivery Service 
at the historic park. We also have bullet train coming in next week. And then after that, we have August 14th is going to be dirty dancing uh, on the Fathom slate. Over at The Real, we're working on getting in the Paris movie, uh, Mrs. Smith Goes to Paris. So we're working on getting that one in. We still also right now have Where the Crawdads Sing, Thor, and Minions is moving from the park over to the Real Mountain Theater. And DC League of Super Pets is coming into the park for this week. Uh, DC League of Super Pets is only at the park for one week, and then it will move over and Bullet Train will come in. Anyways, uh, please check out our websites at historicparktheater.com and realmountain.com, and we look forward to having you back at the movies. Thank you to everybody for really supporting the theaters and helping us get back um, to a little bit more of a normal business level this year uh, after COVID. We know that COVID is still running pretty crazy, but we are really grateful to have you back at the theaters and we are excited that everybody has been able to socially distance with inside the theaters so thanks very much and uh, we look forward to having you at the movies all right well there's a word from our sponsor jenna mcgregor and the two theaters in town um all right let's just jump into this so i wanted to start off with just going over the uh, the sponsored Facebook posts have been going around. And these are sponsored by the Rand Corporation. So let's just start with kind of breaking down what it was. So it, it basically is a link to an article or an essay, rather, um, on their website. And it's entitled Manipulating the Climate. What are the geopolitical risks? And it... Um, Who actually wrote this? It is written by Doug Irving, who is a communications analyst. He's um lead writer for Rand's flagship magazine, Rand Review. And um, prior to joining Rand in 2014, he spent more than 15 years in daily journalism, most recently as the crime and breaking news editor at the Orange County Register. Um, as a reporter, he covered beats ranging from city and county government to transportation to politics and investigation. Um, and over at Rand, he condenses research reports into magazine articles written for non-academic audiences, which I appreciate. Um, he uh, he graduated from University of Oregon with a BA in journalism and news editorial. So that's who's writing this. And um, so I'm just going to I'm going to read a part of it kind of the, the first parts of it, and then kind of summarize the rest. And I'll put a link into the RAND organization. It's just RAND.org. Um, but I'll put a link into this essay specifically. And um, it was originally written back in December 29th of 2021, but it just seems now to be at least hitting my social media feeds um, as far as sponsored content goes. So they're, they're actively buying advertising now with this. Um, so here we go. The snowstorm seemed to come out of nowhere. It coated the roofs of, a Be of Beijing in a white glaze and brought traffic on a dozen highways to a standstill. The city, caught in the grip of a decade-long drought, had not seen so much precipitation in months. It was anything but normal. In fact, the storm in February 2009 was the result of a remarkable confluence of cold air, cloudy skies, 
and 313 sticks of silver iodide fired into the atmosphere by weather engineers hoping to make something out of nothing. Their success in tinkering with the weather underscores a growing risk that has not received the serious international debate it deserves. What happens if someone in our ever-warming world decides to tinker with climate? Technologies that could block the sun's rays or siphon a huge amount of carbon from the air are not that far out of reach. And a recent RAN analysis found they could have world-altering consequences that would make a snowstorm in Beijing look mild by comparison. Yet the international community has not built any real consensus around such basic questions as when such a technology would ever be used, how, or by whom. Some of these technologies have been almost taboo to talk about, said Emmy Yankura, a physical scientist at RAND who helped lead the study. But if we don't get our act together with climate mitigation, there might be real pressure to turn to them in the future. We want to make sure that we can do it safely and with some understanding in the international community. So this kind of dives into, I mean, what's what's generally known as um, climate engineering. And this has been in the realm of conspiracy theory, really for the, the large part of things. Um, geoengineering is kind of a, a catch-all term that's dealing with, you know, the chemtrail-type conspiracy theories. Um, and we, we do know that, like, the, the patents and the technology for this stuff has been around. It's been around for a long time, decades. And um, you can find them online. But, you know, it also begins to dive into that the conspiracy world of the uh, Magellan's disease and, like, oh, microbots, nanobots, and, and you know, a different... It goes down some pretty deep rabbit holes. And, and I was surprised to see, um, you know, a place like the Rand Corporation actually beginning to talk about this. And, and you know what? They're right. Like, as things become more and more desperate, we may have countries begin to tinker around with our atmosphere if they're not already doing it already. Um, so uh, going back to the article, in 1965, Lyndon B. Johnson received the first presidential briefing on climate change. At the time, geoengineering, the international manipulation, or I'm sorry, the intentional manipulation of the climate was presented as one of the only possible solutions. Proposals since then have ranged from the fanciful dropping billions of white balls into the ocean to absorb sunlight to the formidable unfurling a giant sheet of reflective mesh between the earth and the sun. Those ideas may sound outlandish and upsetting, one scientific journal acknowledged, but they could give us an emergency break to pull if we can't stop global warming. So Yonakura teamed up with fellow RAND researcher Michelle Grease, an expert in international law, to look at where geoengineering is now and what's where it's going and what the international community should do to prepare. They found that the technology is coming up fast. It's the policy that has fallen behind. Their analysis focuses on like two major lines of research. 
um, one where we would basically scrub out the carbon pollution from the air itself. Um, and this could involve massive giant filters and, and, you know, pumping it underground, or it could mean seeding the oceans um, for phytoplankton and planting new forests to inhale carbon. It would be, it's going to be expensive either way, um, which, whichever direction we might turn. It would be slow. I mean, the, the reforestation, I mean, after a major forest fire, I mean, you're looking at 16 years before you have, you know, and then small trees. Um, but, you know, the, while being slow, it would take direct aim at the problem, slowing or then reversing the buildup of atmospheric carbon that is driving global warming. Um, the other option, again, is to, to kind of block, reflect back the sun's energy, not with like a giant space mesh, but with tiny particles suspended in the stratosphere or dusted on the clouds to make them reflect more light. Um, and this option is going to be the the quick and cheap option. Um, but, you know, it, carbon would still continue to build up in the atmosphere. Um, and... Um, that's if we let them like chill out on the uh, uh, putting those particles up into the atmosphere. Um, and they're saying that the effect could be the climactic equivalent of opening a shaken up bottle of carbonated water. Uh, continuing with the article, it goes on to say, you can see how this could lead to conflict. If you have two countries with different interests, Greece says, and what we found is that there's really no roadmap for how to deal with problems that could arise as these technologies mature. It would only take one country watching its crops shrivel or its water run dry, much like we're seeing at Lake Mead. Like if you haven't checked out the pictures from Lake Mead right now, like go compare them from the, the pictures from the 80s to like last week. And it's like something out of a dystopian novel. Um, I'm sure the... Uh, the organized crime element in the in the area is uh, get a little nervous about all the bodies popping up because there have been several bodies found um, as the lake dries up. So, um, yeah. So, again, it, it would only take one country watching its crops shrivel or its water run dry, deciding to take a chance to set a global climate experiment in motion. The effects could get out of hand quickly. In 1991, for example, the eruption of Mount Pinatubo blasted tons of gas and particle into the upper atmosphere. Those particles cooled global temperatures by around half a degree Celsius, proof that it could be done. But that then shifted the jet stream, giving northern Europe an unusually warm winter while the Middle East froze. Um... They also say that even carbon removal technologies often seen as necessary to avoid the worst outcomes of climate change have drawbacks that could pit one country against another. They could disrupt ecosystems, and some would require vast amounts of water and energy, researchers found. Even planting a new forest could deplete water supplies and increase agricultural runoff, burdens that would mostly fall on less developed countries that have the space for new forests in the first place. Yet the international community has not established the kind of guardrails you might expect for potentially world-changing technologies. That's at least in part because it wants to keep the focus on the one sure pathway to a carbon-free future, which is cutting carbon emissions, 
anything else one expert said would be like a temporary painkiller. It might make us feel better, but it wouldn't cure the problem. So as a result, there's no single government out there overseeing geoengineering efforts uh, around the world. Um, what there are instead of that are laws and treaties that cover different areas, but could provide some guidance for regulating geoengineering efforts. The law of the sea, for example, could prevent efforts to alter the ocean, such as dropping in a billion white balls. The 1976 treaty prohibits the use of weather modification, conjuring up a snowstorm, for example, as a weapon, but there's no international agreement or enforcement mechanism directly addressing global engineering. Um, the essay goes on to say that there's a blind spot that the international community should address now while the potential risks are still theoretical, researchers wrote. World leaders should establish international agreements on geoengineering with provisions to ensure that technologies are well-researched, well-regulated, and well-supported before any use. They also need to establish clear sanctions if any country doesn't follow the rules. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just finish this article. We need to think through how we can address the issue via international law and actually have it stick, this says. How do we attribute harm? How do we build consensus when these technologies might have different impacts on different communities? How do we integrate communities that might be disadvantaged and make sure their voices are heard? The U.S. National Intelligence Council warned last year that the lack of any international dialogue on geoengineering raises the risk that a country or then a small group will try to go it alone in a way that risks conflict. The National Academy of Sciences also have pressed the United States collaborate with other countries on geoengineering research. It would be highly undesirable, the British Royal Society added, for those technologies to come of age without international oversight. The possibility that they might work means the pressure to use them will almost certainly keep rising with global temperatures. That puts an explanation point on the need to get it right. And um, so, yeah, and then they just finish it up. They also have some great, um, and, and here's what I am going to say about Rand. Like, they really put together their data really, really well. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and again, they're not the same the same think tank that they really were back post um World War II and Cold War days when they were doing, you know, they they had they had studies where they were, you know, including the water pressure of faucets when they were working on these strategies for mutually assured destruction. You know, they they did a lot of work with that type of stuff. Um and um so they've got some infographics here talking about solar radiation management technologies and again you can click the link to the rand um essay and it's at the bottom of it and um you know they're, they, they they're including um a breakdown of the the geoengineering technology you know what our readiness is to implement something like that you know globally what the cost magnitude would be how long it would take and any secondary effects that might happen so for example we have um the first one, let's look at uh, stratospheric aerosol injection, SAI, which involves spraying inorganic particles such as sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere to reflect sunlight. Now, our technical ready for this, technical readiness for this is a low to medium range. Um, and it would cost in the magnitude of two to five billion dollars. 
It would take years. And the secondary effects generally are going to be higher latitude warming, changes in precipitation, ozone depletion, uncertain public health impacts from food water contaminants, ocean acidification, high risk if SAI stops suddenly in that the northern hemisphere deployment uh, may cause severe drought in sub-Saharan Africa and India. Um, Southern hemispheric deployment, rain failure may cause rain failure in Northeast Brazil, more hurricanes in the North Atlantic. Um, you know, and they, they, they break this down for marine cloud brightening, uh, space mirrors, um, and, um, which, which is going to cost a lot. It's going to be in the trillions. Um, and, and to be fair there, the one that we have kind of the best effect for which really my hope is they're pushing for the large-scale reforestation and afforestation which focuses on conserving forests and jungles as well as large-scale planting of non-forested areas um you know we're we're highly ready to take something like that on right now um around the world um it it's not in the trillions for the cost but it is around 100 billion so i mean it's not it's not chump change um and it would take decades to do. So it's a longer thing. You know, like I said earlier, it takes a while for these forests to grow. Um, and, you know, how do we uh, compensate for, we're already in these mega droughts that are just having massive catastrophic effects around the globe. Um, you know, how do we, how do we make sure that anything we plant has the, the water to do it? The secondary effects of, of, of the, uh, large-scale reforestation, afforestation, is um, increased fertilization and irrigation risk water pollution, nutrient runoff, and depletion of fresh water, microclimate alterations, unequal land use burden, and well-forested areas, um, and likely developing countries. You know, I, I just got to believe, like, that's the one that makes the most sense to me. Like, let's just, along with, like, we've got to just figure out new technologies moving forward that get us away from this carbon usage. Um, you know, anyone who doesn't see the connection between, um, that just doesn't look at the science. They're just not looking at the science of this stuff because there, there's very direct evidence that we are, are fucking this shit around and it, it's just fucking the planet up. It really is. So, you know, we've got to do something there. Um, <laughs> I got in this whole conversation because, um, you know, I've been doing some some daydreaming. I, I'm, I'm hoping to dream at this point that my book might do well enough that I might be able to buy the first car I've ever bought in my life. Um, new, not just used. And I've been looking at the new Subaru um, Solterra. It's an all-electric Subaru. And you know, my yard's littered with <laughs> generations of Subarus along with my Harley. But, um, you know, Subarus just, if you live in the mountains, like it's the go-to car. It's reliable. It's cheap to work on. And, um, you know, it does great in the snow and, and flooding and everything else we deal with up here in the mountains, Colorado. So I was looking at that and, um, you know, there, there, there were people that were just saying, are you sure you want to do an electric car? Yes, I am absolutely sure I want to do an electric car. I think we all need to be looking at that. Um, and I think it's foolish. Maybe maybe the technology isn't, you know, we're just starting here. We're just figuring it out. 
Um, but I can tell you, like, my folks had a Leaf, a Nissan Leaf, back in the day, years ago. And I would use that to run up and down the front range. It was amazing. I loved it. Um, you know, I don't need a big diesel truck that I can uh, diesel roll uh, cyclists with. Like, that's the last thing I want. But, uh, you know, a cool Subaru, like, I'm all about that. So, um, yeah, the technology may not be there yet, but that doesn't mean we just blow it off. Like, we've just got to dig in. Like, science for the win. I believe in science. Um, and uh, I want to, <laughs> we, we, we need to. We're, we're just in a survival situation at this point, folks. Like, we figure this out or we're just, not going to continue on as a species and you know more and more that's coming out i I came across this article and i'm gonna pull it up now that deals specifically with what i have been talking about and and kind of is calling things out and again i'm going to go back to a south park reference here like matt and trey get this right so often like we need to start like is it safe to start talking about man bear pig yet can we can we begin to worry about man bear pig no, man, pear big is already here and he's he's fucking up our world, and um, so we've got a, a guy who's written an article in the Guardian, and um, it, it's actually about a book that just came out, um, and uh, the book is written by so the um, book is written by Bill McGuire, who's an emeritus professor of geophysical and climate hazards at the University of College London and was also an advisor to the UK government. And um, he just published a book called Hot House Earth. And um, it really speaks to this. It's, it's going to be appearing in bookshops um, this week, I think. And... Um, He's, he's not pulling punches anymore, you know, a lot. And he's calling out other scientists for really kind of pussyfooting around this. And um, I think we're just at a point as, as, as a world population where we've got to stop pussyfooting around and, and being nice and just call things as they are. You know, that is part of my testimony and before Congress. Like, I'm just, I'm sick of this, this double speak and lies and, and, you know, placation. These are serious issues that we don't figure out. My daughters and granddaughters aren't going to have a world to inherit. I mean, we're already to the point where like maybe they'll inherit a world they can possibly survive in, but it's going to be a nightmarish hellscape either way. Like it's up to us. We've got to do it right now. Um, so, uh, yeah. So <clears throat> let me read a little bit. Uh, of this piece here and we'll go from there and i'll put a link into the article as well on the guardian the publication of bill mcguire's latest book hot house earth could not be more timely appearing in the shops this week it will be perused by sweltering customers who have just endured record high temperatures across the uk and now face the prospect of weeks of drought to add to their discomfort and this is just the beginning, insists McGuire, who is emeritus professor of geophysical and climate hazards at the University of College London, as he makes clear in his uncompromising description of the cl- coming climate catastrophe. We have, for far too long, ignored explicit warnings that 
rising carbon emissions are dangerously heating the earth. Now we're gonna pay the price for our complacency in the form of storms, floods, droughts, and heat waves that will easily surpass the current extremes. And, and again, like we're living that now. The crucial point he argues is that there is now no chance of us avoiding a perilous, all-pervasive climate breakdown. We have passed the point of no return and can expect a future in which lethal heat waves and temperatures in excess of 50 degrees Celsius, 120 Fahrenheit for us here in the uh, U.S., are common in the tropics, where summers at temperate latitudes will invariably be, be baking hot and where our oceans are destined to become warm and acidic. A child born in 2020 will face a far more hostile world than its grandparents did, McGuire insists. In this respect, the volcanologist, who was also a member of the UK nationals, government's National Hazard Working Group, takes an extreme position. Most other climate experts still maintain that we have time left, although not very much, to bring about meaningful reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. A rapid drive to net zero and the halting of global warming is still within our grasp, they say. Such claims are dismissed by McGuire. Good for him. I know a lot of people working in climate science who say one thing in public, but a very different thing in private. In confidence, they are all much more scared about the future we face. But they won't admit that in public. I call this climate appeasement, and I believe it only makes things worse. The world needs to know how bad things are going to get before we can hope to start to tackle this crisis. McGuire finished writing Hot House Earth at the end of 2021. He includes many of the record high temperatures that had just afflicted the planet, include extremes that had struck the UK. A few months after he completed his manuscript as a publication loomed, he found that many of those records had already been broken. This is the trouble with writing a book about climate breakdown, says McGuire. By the time it's published, it is already out of date. That is how fast things are moving. Among the records broken during the book's editing was the announcement of a temperature of 40.3 degrees Celsius, which reached in East England on the 19th of July, the highest ever recorded in the UK. The country's previous hottest temperature was 38.7 degrees Celsius, and that was taken in Cambridge in 2019. In addition to London's fire service having to tackle blazes across the capital with one conflagration destroying 16 homes in Wennington, East London, crews there had to fight to save the local fire station itself. Who would have thought that a village on the edge of London would almost be wiped out by wildfires in the year 2022, says McGuire. If this country needs a wake-up call, then surely that is it. Um, and we know wildfires of unprecedented intensity and ferocity have also swept across Europe, North America, Australia. I mean, it's everywhere. It's Spain. It's, it's in Europe. It's, it's everywhere. We had the uh, devastating floods in our uh, Yellowstone National Park. You know, we've seen flooding here in Estes Park, Colorado. I, I'm going to have a, a listener and supporter of mine on. She's on flood number nine this year. Maybe it was 19. Um, but, I mean, flooding has just become a, a 
a fact of life now and fires. And I mean, Kruger Rock Fire was in the middle of winter. It was, well, maybe not in the dead of winter, but it, it, it what we don't have a fire season anymore. Um, and this is just uh, what's been happening when we've only heated up to just over one degree. So again, this is, uh, we're, we're seeing glaciers collapse. You know, we saw the, the mountains of Rocky Mountain National Park shift and move due to and what my thought is it has something to do with the uh the loss of the glaciers up there maybe it's just uh geological settling but you know we we i think it was out of i don't know there's that video that went viral uh last month where you literally saw a, a glacier collapse and come all the way down the mountain in like this huge avalanche of of glacial ice um almost taking out the, the the people recording it on their cameras. Um, and this is just going on and on and on. It's a broken record. And um, so getting back to um, to to the original subject matter, um, I also came across a um, article out of Japan from the Japan Times. Um, and this came out on the 20th of July this year. Um, and, uh, it was originally written by Lori Goring for the Thomas Reuters foundation, but republished in uh, the Japan times. Um, and it talks about, I'm going to go over this a little bit as fossil fuels use continues apace and a hotter planet edges closer to passing safety limits. Some scientists are exploring a controversial technology stopgap, spraying chemicals into the atmosphere to reflect away some of the sun's warmth. Deploying the technology using special planes would be relatively cheap and simple, costing a few billion dollars a year, it's backers say. And it could, if maintained, hold down global average temperatures, potentially staving off increasingly deadly climate change impacts such as heat waves. I do see it as a likely option. If plans to cut emissions fall short and dangers grow, said Amy Yonkura, a researcher on the risks of climate geoengineering at Rand Corporation. And this, this, I came across this because it references this, this study. Um, a military-focused policy think tank during an online event. But the technology, which mimics the sky-darkening effects of volcanic eruptions, also carries serious and unpredictable risks, critics say, with some scientists so worried that they believe research should stop and outdoor tests should be banned. Threats range from potential shifts in rainfall patterns that could spur worsening hunger to rapid, uncontrollable temperature rise if the technology's use is suddenly stopped. The availability of such a planet cooling option could also give climate polluters an unwarranted green light to carry on, even though stratospheric aerosol injection would only make only mass the problem, not solve it. Um, and they go on to talk about the the early efforts to create rules governing the use of um, uh, geoengineering technologies, but it, it, it's something that people are starting to talk about. My original thoughts were, you know, why is the Rand Corporation doing this? But, you know, they are a, they are considered by many America's think tank. Um, 
you know, and as I said earlier, you know, they've changed. I mean, originally, and this is according to uh, an article I found in the Columbia Journalism Review. And it's a it's an old article. It was written in uh, 2008 by Benjamin Schwartz. But uh, it starts off by saying, ridiculed in Dr. Strangelove as the bland corporation, castigated by Pro- Pravda as the American Academy of Science and Death, and thrust into the spotlight where the Pentagon Papers were stolen from it, the Rand Corporation has played a somewhat mysterious role in U.S. public policy since its founding in 1946. In Soldiers of Reason, the Rand Corporation and the Rise of the American Empire, Alexa Bella surveys the organization's history and its extraordinarily wide-ranging influence on the world stage. Indeed, the author argues that Rand analysis have been the advocates, planners, and courtiers of an ever-expanding America. How did this come about? Well, at the end of World War II, the Air Force recognized that it would need the same sort of scientific and economic expertise that they had called upon during the conflict to conceive new weapons, analyze costs, evaluate training and combat procedures, and select targets. To that end, it developed a nonprofit civilian advisory outfit, Project RAND, an acronym for the Research and Development to Conduct Long-Range Studies. The hard-charging and brilliant, if politically retrograde, General Curtis LeMay nurtured the organization and protected it from interfering bureaucrats and top brass, insisting it had to be free to determine its own research agenda. In 1948, with the help of a grant from the Ford Foundation, RAND became an independent nonprofit corporation, able to conduct any non-propriety research it chose. Still, the Air Force remained its premier client throughout the 1950s. Military policy and defense budgeting emphasized nuclear forces, and the Air Force was in charge of those glamorous strategic weapons. From the think tank's point of view, the Flyboys were an enlightened and exceedingly generous patron, even after Rand began to carry out studies for various Pentagon offices during the Kennedy administration. The author goes on to say, that he worked for Rand as a national security analyst from the 1980s to the mid-90s, and people there spoke of those earlier times with wonder and nostalgia. Thanks to the ever-expanding Cold War budgets, the Air Force essentially dumped a truckload of money at Rand's front door every year. The organization permitted to spend that money at its discretion, although most of it funded useless research. The author recalled a 1960 errors report on the Black Death in the Middle Ages as an example of societal catastrophe and recovery. Some of it helped to invent nuclear strategy, what I was talking about earlier, Sovietology and systems analysts, analysis, which is probably Rand's most lasting contribution to its military clients. Other analysis developed such as far-reaching pursuits as game theory and rational choice theory. Late in the 1940s and 50s, they were indisputably Rand's golden age. Of the 29 Nobel laureates, Nobel laureates, I always have problems with that word, who have been staff members or advisors, nearly all were connected to the outfit in those years. It makes sense then for Abella to devote a disproportionate share of his pages to this relatively brief period in the organization's history. 
He chronicled how Rand used a dizzying array of variables to evaluate the cost and effectiveness of weapon systems and how it refined economic and behavioral theory to predict adversaries' actions. Well, I mean, now it's, it, it is a bit different. It has been since the, the late 70s. Um, since the late 70s, Rand has devoted about half of its efforts to domestic policy, and much of this work, particularly in the field of health economics, represents the organization at its most innovative. But here, too, Abello's account is thin. Of course, it's difficult to sex up a multi-year assessment of the effects of employee pension on the labor supply of the Japanese elderly. Still, there's an abundance of sexing up in the overwrought book, and... Um, they're talking about here in this article. I, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier. Um, let me find it here. That way we have it referenced. Here it is. Um, It's a book by MIT PhD, uh, Fred Kaplan, written in 1983 or published in 1983, The Wizards of Armageddon. So that's the what they're they're referencing there. Um, so getting back to what I was talking about. Um, so for instance, Abella makes much of the fact that Holsetter, who left Rand in 1963, favored a hard line against the Soviets in the 80s. Um, so basically, since the 70s, they started doing more and more domestic policy. Um, and, uh, you know, they've been pretty nonpartisan. I've gone back and dug up, you know, uh, some research on what it's like to work for the Rand Corporation. And it is a lot of very, very intelligent people. And they really do try their best these days to be nonpartisan and just um, – looking at the numbers and, and, and asking some of these bigger questions and figuring out the answers as best they can. Um, so yeah, I, but I, I still got to wonder like, what is this setting up? Because it's obviously replicating out into the greater, uh, journalism world. And, uh, I just had to wonder why they're doing that. Um, and uh, they, but, but at the same time, they're bringing up some great points. And I think this is probably something we do need to really take a very hard look at with this, this geoengineering. We can't just dismiss it as it's a conspiracy theory and, you know, perpetrated by the Illuminati and underground shape-shifting lizards. Um, you know, the, the, the patents have been out there, the, the technology is out there, and there are dangers with it. When you look at the Earth... So if you were to take a scale model of the earth and, and say it's the size of a basketball, if you were to take a, a coat, single coat of varnish, um, like you would put on a painting or something, um, and, and put that around the basketball, that's basically representative of the size of our atmosphere. So it's very, very small compared to the greater mass of the earth and size of it. And it's easy to fuck up. Like, we we're already doing it. And I don't think tinkering with it more necessarily is the best answer. I don't know what the answer is, but I, I think it, it probably has to do with, you know, replanting and cutting out the shit that we've been doing. Um, so, uh, 
anyway, this just kind of struck me. It was in my news feeds and, and I started digging into it. And I just wanted to share it with you and, and get you thinking about it as well. So that's going to be the episode for today. Um, should put out another one. We've been doing, me and uh, John Meister have been doing some work on um, some of the treatment of our local J-1 visa workers um, with uh, several different employers here in town. And we've been gathering some interviews and, and stuff. So we're going to begin talking about that hopefully later this week. Um, again, this is a subject I need to be careful with. So we're going to we're going to just, um, we got to do some brainstorming on approach and I've got to talk to attorneys and stuff, but, uh, it's a story we're going to begin telling because, uh, we just need to treat these people better. Um, as you'll see as some of these interviews come forward. Um, anyway, that's the show for today. I got to get to writing my book on, um, you know, every day, every day, but you know, things are really taking off. So, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to try my best not to fuck this up and just put out the best book I possibly can. And, um, yeah, hopefully everyone will like it. Hopefully you'll like it. Hopefully you'll, uh, you'll, um, uh, run out and grab one. If you want to pre-order it, you can, uh, do it right here in town at McDonald's books. Um, you know, I, I, I think I didn't sign the ones at McDonald's here that come in locally. If you want to get a signed copy of my upcoming book and, um, you know, it's not going to be out till like February 16th. So I, I'm still finishing the book, but there's a lot of pre-sales. There's a lot of interest in it. You know, I got to do an interview with, uh, I just got reached out to by uh, the Tokyo Broadcasting System TV services. So even as far as Japan, um, there's interest in, in my story and, and what I'm talking about in it. So uh, yeah, I think it uh, really may have a chance to hopefully, knock on wood, change my family's economic uh, situation because, you know, I've talked about it a lot. Just because everyone knows who you are doesn't mean that you're making any money. Um, and I, again, I give out everything for free here at the Switchblade because I um, I think people need to know what I'm talking about, uh, especially with some of these, these local issues. So um, one way you can look at supporting us is, is buying a book. The other thing you can do is um, look at purchasing a membership. Again, you don't need it. I'm going to put everything out for free. I am thinking about, like I said earlier in the beginning of the podcast, I am thinking about doing like maybe a video version where you can see my ugly mug um, as I'm doing the podcast. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if people are interested in that. Anyway, I hope you stay safe this week. Stay cool. Hopefully the flooding and fires will be not so catastrophic in your area. You've been listening to the Colorado Switchblade. I'm Jason Van Tatenhove. I'll talk with you soon.